Some stories are simple, are easy. Some we won't even remember. But others linger, invading our minds, festering under our skin, and then finally falling. Off the Bone. Welcome to Off the Bone, the podcast about the true murder sprees and unsolved mysteries of our shared past. We are your hosts, JM and Nicole. As a warning, we will be discussing stories that are brutal, macabre, and horrifying in nature. This is not for little years, but then, if you clicked on a podcast called Off the Bone, what the hell were you expecting? I also want to say that these thoughts are our own thoughts and not representative of anybody else because we're going to get probably ranty. Oh, yeah. Yeah, ranty. I think both of us in our own ways a little bit later. So keep that in mind. Uh, and here we go. Shanda Sharar. Lemon Road in Madison, Indiana is a short road off of US 421. Scattered trees line the north of the road and farmlands surround the south. It's a quiet place, as it was in 1992. Madison has a population of 12,000, and it was the ideal small town. During World War II, the Army even produced a propaganda film using footage of Madison as the ideal of what the GIs were fighting to preserve. In 1992, it seemed no different. Lemon Road was a dirt and gravel road traveled only by those close to the community, as was the case on January 11th in the early morning hours. Lemon Road was to be the final site for 12-year-old Shanda Sharar. The murder of Shanda Sharar is one of the most diabolical, twisted, and heartbreaking events in recent history, especially in rural America. In this podcast, I will not go through all the details of her brutal torture and subsequent death, but rather the events leading up to this and the aftermath of a life taken too soon. By all accounts, Shanda was an outgoing and athletic girl playing several sports and also cheerleading. She attended Hazelwood Middle School where she met the wrong person, another girl. At first, she and Amanda Heverin had actually had been at odds with each other, getting into a fight and ending up in detention. However, during their detention, a friendship blossomed and from friendship, a nascent relationship began. However, Amanda had previously dated another girl Melinda Loveless, and Loveless was not ready to let go of the relationship that easy. Melinda Loveless's brief childhood was not a happy one, according to her and her mother's accounts. Her father, a previous Vietnam veteran, was abusive, controlling, neglectful, and violent. Allegations of sexual abuse, threats of violence and murder, battery, and sexual extortion were among his repertoire. Melinda's mother had attempted suicide previously due to the abuse, one time provoking her daughters to call for emergency services. These are the broken beginnings of a murderer, Melinda Loveless. By 1990, Loveless, then 14, got into fights at school and complained of depression after her father left the family and her mother remarried. During this tumultuous time, she began dating Amanda Heverin. In March 1991, Loveless eventually disclosed to her mother that she was a lesbian. 
Allegedly, her mother was initially furious at the admission, but later accepted it. However, her relationship with Hebron began to break apart, and Hebron moving on and showering her affections towards Shanda Sharar. Full of frustration and rage, Loveless would constantly threaten Sharar, demanding that she remain only friends with Hebron, or that harm would come to her. As the threats escalated, Sharar transferred middle schools, hoping this would defuse the situation. Unfortunately, it did not. On January 10th, there were four girls involved in the murder. Mary Lori Tackett was the oldest at 17. High school dropout, her life had been tumultuous. With a history of self-harm and abuse by her parents, Tackett was diagnosed with borderline personality in 1991. And after an incident of self-harm, a psychiatric stay. There was also the rumor whispered through the social circles that Tackett was gay, increasing tensions between her and her peers and isolating her. She was friends with the two other girls involved in the murder, but had not met Loveless previous to that night. Tony Lawrence was 15 years old. The previous year, at 14, she had been raped by another teen. However, the boy was never prosecuted with the crime. She began to self-harm and in the eighth grade attempted suicide. She had not met Loveless previous to January 10th. Hope Rippey was also 15. Her parents had divorced, resulting in her moving to Michigan for three years before her parents got back together and she and her family moved back to the Madison community. Withdrawn from other classmates, she too would self-harm. The plan was to go to Sharar's father's home, where Rippy and Lawrence would claim that they were friends of Sharar's girlfriend, Hebron and that Hebron was waiting to see her at the local teen legend tripping spot called the Witch's Castle. Then Loveless would instead intimidate Sharar into breaking it off with Hebron. However, Sharar asked them to come back later at midnight so she could sneak out. To kill time, they went to a concert where the two younger girls picked up boys after getting bored of the concert. They later returned to Sharar's house with Loveless hidden in the backseat. At first, she was hesitant to leave, but then Shanda finally agreed. Once in the car, the topic turned towards her relationship with Hebron. That's when Loveless first attacked. As I previously stated, I'm not gonna go into the details of the horrific and brutal murder of this young girl. The four girls took her to various locations before ending up at Lemon Road, finally killing her by emulation. By all accounts, each girl had played a part in the torture and murder. They proceeded to tell multiple friends about the murder, including Scherer's girlfriend, Amanda Hebron. During this time, two brothers spotted the remains on Lemon Road and called authorities. Left in an open and empty cornfield, Stephen Henry, the first Indiana State Police Trooper to reach the crime scene, said he thought that it looks like a female mannequin lying there. In fact, since the crime was so appalling in nature, the police believed that it was a drug deal gone bad from another part of the state. By 1.45 p.m., a missing persons report was officially filed for Shanda and her, after her parents could not find her. At 8.20 p.m., Lawrence had gone to the police, hysterical and rambling about the murder. The police put two and two together. All the girls were arrested. The body was positively identified. The nightmare was about to rock the small town to its core. All four of the girls were charged as adults. All four pleaded guilty to avoid the death penalty. During the investigation, Loveless's father's crimes were brought into the light. In February 1993, Larry Loveless was arrested on charges of rape, sodomy, and sexual battery. However, a judge eventually ruled that all of the charges except one count of sexual battery had to be dropped due to the statute of limitations. 
Loveless pleaded guilty to one count sexual battery and received a sentence and time served and was released June 1995. Lawrence was released on December 14, 2000 after serving nine years. Rippy was released on April 28, 2006 after serving 14 years of her original sentence. Tackett was released on January 11, 2018, the 26th anniversary of Scherer's death after serving nearly 26 years. Which brings us to Melinda Loveless, the mastermind and instigator of the murder. There's a strange and unique twist to her story, however. While serving her prison sentence, an Indiana program called ICANN, or Indiana Canine Assistant Network, helped Loveless. Behind bars, she began training puppies to be assistant dogs for people of disabilities. One of the breeders for the program reached out Shanda Sharar's mother and asked to watch a video of the program with her daughter's killer training the dogs. Jackie Vaught surprisingly did. After watching the video, she said, I was really taken aback. I saw someone almost reborn. She was sincere. She was compassionate. I think the ICANN program allows her to have something in her life that she can show love back to, and there's never betrayal on either side. And then Jackie Vaught surprised them all. She donated a puppy she named Angel for Loveless to train in prison in honor of Shanda, adding, if you don't let good things come from bad things, nothing gets better, and I know that my child would want us. Vaught stated that she hoped to donate a dog to the organization every year in, in honor of Shanda. Loveless was released on September 5th, 2019, after serving 26 plus years in prison. She will serve parole in Jefferson County, Kentucky. In the small community of Big Spring, Kentucky, Shanda Sherrard's grave can be found in a quiet, quaint cemetery for Big Springs Methodist Church. Etched on her heart-shaped tombstone is a pair of hands, opened, letting go of a butterfly. The end. So first, um, we are going to leave some links. If you're suffering from depression or self-harm, thoughts of suicide, we're going to leave some links in the comments um, <laughs> for, for places that can help out with that. So that being said, what are your, yeah, what are, what's, what's your angle? <laughs> yeah, that being said, um, and this is going to need some explanation, um, but let me begin by saying fuck Dr. Phil. From the <laughs> bottom of my blackened soul, from the very depths of hell he belongs in, fuck him. More on that later. <laughs> the sad and twisted tale of Shanda Sharar has inspired two true crime novels. Little Lost Angel by Michael Quinlan and Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones. Jones's book hit the New York Times bestseller list, which proves we're in the right business. Of all the stories we've talked about, I don't think I've researched another that had so many TV episodes dedicated to it. SVU has one called Mean, Cold Case called it The Sleepover, Lifetime's Killer Kid called it Jealousy, and The Deadliest Decade from Discovery sorry for the alliteration there, called it the new girl. Each one considers the story from a different angle. Given the sordid complexity of the case, that makes total sense. There was a stage play inspired by the tale called Hazelwood Junior High by Rob Yerbatani, which is a weird way to go, but art is art. This is a new one on me. There's two poems written about this. The Whole World is Singing by Daphne Gottlieb and In God's Arms by Lacey Gray. Finally, Artist Marlene McCarthy drew the killers in her Murder Girl series. These paintings are weird, gross, explicit, and I wish I hadn't seen them. Oof. Don't look them up. Oof. Now back to Dr. Fucking Phil. 
who hasn't been a doctor since 2006, by the way. He had Amanda Hevron on his show to basically be a punching bag for Shonda's family. It was a repulsive display for sick people to feast upon. If you think this is hypocritical of me, you're wrong. Let me explain why you're wrong. It is one thing to create art based on a horrible story. Things like this, they get stuck in the brains of artists. We've got to get it out. Either a story or a poem, a series of messed up drawings, or even a fucking stage play. It's not meant to profit off a sad story of the victims. What Phil did was display people at the worst points of their lives and let other people watch. He doesn't do this to help people or to create anything that could be perceived as art. He's just making money, profiting from this messed up story of sad little girls who hurt another little girl. So fuck him. I believe that's where I came in. But let me also add, the things that he did on his show, having these girls on multiple times, has overshadowed the great work that Shanda's mother is doing and the beautiful legacy that she has given her daughter. So if we're going to learn anything from this, we should learn from Shanda's mother. So I have my own thoughts going into this, especially to, I, I chose this one, obviously. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I have so many with kids. I'm sorry. This one always stuck out in my heart because it was, it's hard to describe because it is, it is such a tragedy in so many different ways. And so many different questions just come up of like, these girls had never even met. I mean, it wasn't like a pact of like, oh, we are close, closer than close friends that are killing this person and hiding the body and yada, yada. These are people that just met. And yeah. understandably, you know, they were under the pretense of we're just going to scare this girl a little, which is still kind of weird, but whatever. And going into torture and death and immolation and that's just astounding and again the story of it coming in there's a lot of underlining homophobia with it and sexism in this case that I found when I was researching when I started looking into this uh, from the very beginning get-go to even to this day and which I find just so deeply unsettling there's this underlying current that part of the sexual attraction or what you may, sexual identity, I should say, of these girls called into question, scrutinized, you know, lesbianism was to blame, etc, etc. And again, just, it's so astounding, like, in the Chicago Tribune, uh, written by Ron Grossman, July 29th, 1992. So around that time, he said that, you know, the aspect of the Shara murder, that it might be inspired by a love triangle, is a tough issue for folks to deal with. Lesbianism is not a word native to everyday speech in Madison. Few folks here are comfortable with the idea that children of 12 or even 16 might be sexually active, even in heterosexual relationships. So some prefer to interpret the competition between Sharar and Loveless for a third girl's affection as the kind of platonic crushes teenage girls cycle through on the way to maturity. And in fact, there was a reverend at the time that spoke up and said, you know, a child doesn't know their sexual identity, you know, at the age of 12. And I know a lot of LGBTQ people would highly disagree with that. But again, it was just appalling because even the Madison police chief, uh, Bill Tingle at the time, said that there was 90% chance that lesbian jealousy touched off the crime. And he said that it was just basically lesbian drama. 
that it's so dismissed in our society. Here, these people were in a very, very small, tight-knit community, feeling like outsiders. And I'm not, definitely not saying that what they did wasn't heinous and shouldn't be. Absolutely, absolutely never done. But it's it's hard when you were an outsider and all these things are happening. It was just, I don't know, it still sticks with me. It sticks with me. And even now, like a lot of it, I've seen it be called like the new mean girls or just dismissed like, oh, they were just friends. They weren't really into each other or anything like that. Just the dismissiveness of this case just always just kind of pokes at me real wrong. And so Shanda in her young life and sexual orientation, whatever that was, was a victim. And not because of lesbianism, but because of an underlining abuse and mental health issues. Her legacy was cut short, and that is the heartbreaking reality. So I want you to please just respect that and not use her death as ammunition against the lesbian community, nor young girls. It's a tragedy that never should have happened, and hopefully we can try to prevent in the future for other young women. That's my little rant. That's my soapbox. I'm getting off it now. No, I I agree entirely, and I think I'm going to go ahead and put on my old lady hat here. Oh, it's a nice hat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very, very old-fashioned, but nice. But I am, you know, I'm in my mid-30s. And when you get to be that age, it's difficult to look back on being in high school and remember how raw and how intense everything felt. Everything was the end of the world. Everything was a nightmare. Everything was horrible. And the thought of these young women doing something this horrific, because again, this was horrific, But this action has blotted their entire lives. And I really wonder how close anyone is to that when they're in high school. And if nothing else, we should all do three things because of this story. One, we should all donate to the Trevor Project. We'll leave a link for that below as well. Two, we should donate to, um, what was the name of the the charity? I can. We should all donate to I can. And we should all remember, if you are child adjacent, that at that age, everything is turmoil, everything hurts, and sometimes we just need to listen to our kids. Be, you know, your own child, niece, random kid on the street that looks sad. (laughs) Sometimes they just need us to listen and not tell them that they're overreacting. Or that we know better or anything. Yeah, or that we know better. It's a hard, it's the hardest time. If somebody asked me right now, hey, would you like to go back and be a teenager? I'd say, fuck you, get out of here, buddy. Yeah. I would never. I'd never. Fuck that. Never. Fuck that noise. I, I like being an 80-year-old person. Yeah. And if I if there are any young listeners, you know, I I do feel for you. And it is such a hard time in your life. It does get better. It does. Please, please believe me. It really does. It will. It will. You have to just hang on and try to get as many resources as you can if your parents don't understand if you're, you know, pastors and Girl Scout and Boy Scout leaders or whatever, the people in your life, if they're not connecting with you, keep trying, keep going, keep swimming. You will get out of it. I promise you. And then you'll get to pay your bills. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Paying bills is fun. (laughs) But guess what? When you do your taxes, sometimes you get money back. It's pretty cool. Yeah. That's, and you know, the world is full of people that will love you for exactly who you are and accept you and find every single thing that you don't like about yourself. That's going to be why someone loves you. Exactly. So it's, this one's a tough one. I knew it was going to be a tough one. This one sucks. (laughs) But I feel like it, I mean, it's so recent too. I mean, not super, super duper recent, but like compared to the, all the other shit we do. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think it was like the 1800s. <laughs> right. So. so again, you know, just keep pushing. Keep, keep and, and like Nicole said, if you know somebody, I mean, and they're on their phone and they're non-committal, don't just think, oh, they're on their phone and they're non-committal pieces of shit. <laughs> They've got so much shit going on in their lives. Just have a little faith have a little talk with them and just say, look, you know, whatever's going on, I'm here. So you got anything to plug? I would just, my plugs would be absolutely everything that you just said. I can, uh, Trevor Project. Um, honestly too, you know, if you're in a city, a kind of bigger city, you're going to have a local LGBTQ, you're going to have local youth group places. Mm-hmm. Um, donate to those because they freaking love those because especially those places they don't get the grants that they need because they don't have the staff on hand to make those grants to get that money so Mm -hmm. throw money at them yeah especially if you live in like a a tiny little rust belt like i live in west pennsylvania uh we we put a lot of money towards local uh lgbtq groups in detroit we have a great place ruth ellis house Shout out to that. But uh, what do you have to plug? I'm not plugging any of my books this week. Um, <laughs> donate to the Trevor Project. Um, listen to one know. of the other ones. Yeah, listen to one of the other ones. Donate to the Trevor Project. It gets better. Go listen to that beautiful song um, that Lin-Manuel Miranda did with the guy who um, who wrote Dear Evan Hansen. They did a beautiful song. They uh, partnered with it. It gets better. And it's gorgeous. Go listen to that. Sounds good. Oh, it's like, oh, it's like a mixture of one of the songs from Hamilton and one of the songs from Dear Evan Hansen. It's, it's beautiful. Go listen to that. Sounds perfect. All right. We will see you next time. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy, stay not killed. Yeah. Stay not killed. (laughs) All right. Bye guys. Bye.